Welcome to Living the Word Today, brought to you by Mount Calvary Baptist Church. We invite you to spend the next few minutes studying God's Word with your Bible teacher, Jesse Wagoner. Pastor Wagoner's desire for you is to not only understand God's truth, but to help you live it today. More resources can be found on our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Now it is time to open your heart and your Bible for your time in the Word. In Nehemiah chapter 8, in verse 10, we find a little phrase tucked in the end of this verse that says this, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So we're going to talk today about joyous strength or strength that provides joyousness, joy in our lives. And uh, that phrase has been sort of rattling around in my mind ever since I kind of got into this study of these references to being strong in the Lord and where that comes from. But, uh, you know, you see that little phrase there, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, oftentimes we can find little phrases like that. Sometimes we post them online. Sometimes we see them on a plaque. Sometimes we see them in, on greeting cards. Uh, if you go to the greeting card store, you, uh, uh, you can, you know, how they categorize things. You know, okay, this is for this kind of person, this person in my life. This is for moms or this is for a daughter or a son or a a spouse or whatever and you see you categorize it down and then you go down through that particular category and they have these little cards sticking up above the actual greeting cards to kind of give you that designation and then you'll see ones that have a cross on it and that's your I just recently found out you probably already known this for a long time okay but 
But uh, it, that tells you that that has a, a religious reference to it, a verse or a, a something that says something about the Lord. I, so I just find category cross, I'm good to go. I can find a card in that category. But oftentimes you'll open the card up when you're looking at it, and there'll just be a little verse or a portion of a verse. And, and this one would fit. I don't know if I've actually seen it in a greeting card, but the joy of the Lord is your strength. That sounds so good. But how do you do that? Is there some place that you can find the turn joy on switch and we just flip it and suddenly there we're there and we can draw strength from that? Is it just deciding to do it? I'm going to be joyous. There we go. And we, we kind, of, kind of muster up this internal decision making. And there might be some value to that. I don't want to deny that. But uh, as in most cases in our biblical study, you have to dig a little bit deeper rather than just taking one little phrase. So what we need to do is sort of pull out and look at what goes on before and what goes on afterwards and what it fits in is what we call its context to help us with that. So let's do that right now. We're going to find some clues that's going to help us understand and set the parameters of how we can be joyous in the Lord and through that we can see strength provided to us spiritually. Now if you kind of pull out, just look at the very top of the page if you're looking at a at a version of the Bible that is in paper, you'll at least see the word Nehemiah at the top because it's the book of Nehemiah, and obviously we're in chapter 8. So there's some things you probably already know about Nehemiah. If not, let me just give you the, the, the basics, if you will. Nehemiah is known as what is known as a post-exilic book. It is post-exile. It is after the exile. So it fits into this time frame of Jewish history in the Old Testament that is after the Babylonian captivity. <clears throat> and you recall, God had warned them time and again, if you continue to dabble in adultery, idolatry, if you continue to disobey me, if you continue to break my law, uh, th these, these foreigners are going to come in and you're going to be carried away captive, and that occurred uh, for 70 years. Now, post-exile, this is a book that is what is happening after that. Nehemiah was a uh, cupbearer of the ruler of the Persian Empire, okay? So the Babylonian captivity began to end when the Babylonians were overtaken by the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, there's a Bible story directly connected to this. That's in Daniel. Remember the story of the handwriting on the wall? Basically, the handwriting on the wall was God telling Babylon, your time is up, you're finished. And that very night, the Medes and the Persian army come in and overtake Babylon, and they become the ruling empire of the world. They had a different geopolitical philosophy, and they began at, at a particular point to allow these, these, these displaced people to be repatriated to their own land. So the Jews began, at least a remnant of them, a portion of them, began to trickle back into to Israel, into Canaan, and began to reestablish Israel as, a, as its own entity. As the book of Nehemiah unfolds, Nehemiah asks permission if he can go back to, to Jerusalem. He looks at the city and he realizes that the biggest need the city has is the walls around the city. The city has been smashed and destroyed. There's people living there, but there's no walls around to protect it. In their day, an unwalled city was almost not a city. It was, all, it was defenseless. You're, you're just asking for it. So in, verse, in, in chapters 1 through 6... Thereabouts. Seven pretty much is a, is, a re, is a reiteration of all the people who, who come back, and there's all sorts of kind of plots going on and all sorts of conspiracies going on. But they finish the walls of Jerusalem, they are rebuilt. Okay? So that sets the scene. It is a story written in the context of a people who have been punished for their sins and are now being restored by God. Big clue. 
So when we're talking about the joy of the Lord is your strength, that's in the background. Now look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that is in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest, and by the way, that's the same Ezra who wrote the book of Ezra and his story is told there. The priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. There's two more clues tucked into that passage. One is this event, this worship service, this reading of the law takes place at the water gate, the gate that water was brought into Jerusalem. We know that this, this gate was on the eastern side of the city because on the eastern side of the city, in the Kidron Valley, there is a spring, a natural spring known as the Gion Spring. And Gion in Hebrew really literally means gushing. It's not so much in today's, even though it's still there, still sending water out as it's done for centuries. It's not quite the same because with the demand of development around and the water table has descended a little bit, it's not quite so much. But in their day, four or five times a day, just there'd be a big gush of water come out of the Gion Spring and it would flow out and it would provide water. The only reason Jerusalem could be a city in that location was there was a source of fresh water from this spring. So in, the, in essence, the, the, the water gate was where people would go out and get, collect water from this spring and bring it into the city. And then late, earlier, I should say, back before Jerusalem was destroyed, Hezekiah, because he was afraid of the Assyrians who were coming to threaten him. We talked about the end of that story a few weeks ago. But he covered up the Gion Spring so it could not be seen, and then he dug a tunnel about 1,700 feet through the bedrock to channel the water from the Gion Spring inside the walls of Jerusalem, and it ends in the Pool of Siloam. And you read about that in the New Testament in Jesus' day. So this, this Watergate place was a place from which the blessings gushed. So th this scene was set up so that it was a time of restoration, a time of God renewing blessings upon Israel. And then you see in verse number two that I just read, it's on the first day of the seventh month, clue number three, probably the most important clue. Now, Bible dates in the Bible are there for a reason. It's not just, you know, we just typically, we'll read it seventh, seventh month, first day, flip the page, but we need to stop and examine that, Okay. Now, you would know this from your study if, you've, if you understood the, the feasts that were embedded into the calendar of Israel. And the chapter that gives the overview of that is the 23rd chapter of Leviticus, where it mentions the, the feasts of Passover and so forth, and it moves through the whole, the whole list, Pentecost and all those sorts of things. Now, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, there was the Feast of Trumpets. Three of those seven feasts took place in one month, the seventh month. The seventh month corresponds roughly to our September-October, because our calendar is not completely aligned with their calendar. And it was the Feast of Trumpets because it began with the blowing of trumpets. And in their day, a trumpet was not uh, necessarily a metal, kind of like a, you know, we'd see a trumpet in a band, but uh, it would be a ram's horn. And uh, when I was in the band, I was a drummer, not a horn player, so I am not going to attempt to make a sound out of this ram's horn, okay? Uh, I, can, I can get a squeak or a squawk sometimes, but it's not anything you want to hear. But uh, you can blow this sort of like a trumpet and get the vibration going, the air blowing through it, and it makes this, this, this sound that's, that you notice and hear. And a blow of a trumpet's uh, horn or a ram's horn was to call people to gather together and to pay attention because something important is about to take place. So they would do that's why it was called the Feast of Trumpets. Interestingly, we don't know this, we don't know this from the Bible, but from uh, the, the literature of, of Israel outside of the Bible, 
they would gather together in Jerusalem on the Feast of Trumpets. And during the course of even one day's celebration, it was a multi-day celebration, but there, it, was a, it was a feast that was primarily surrounding prayer. There was all these prayers that were made to God on different subjects. And more than 100 times in a day, there was a particular time in the prayer where the priest would blow the horn to get your attention. And that's the reason it became known as the Feast of Trumpets. And the Feast of Trumpets preceded another feast that took place, or another day, maybe would be a way to say it. Okay, that was the first day of the seventh month. On the tenth day of the seventh month was the Day of Atonement. In modern nomenclature, the Feast of Trumpets is known as Rosh Hashanah. The Day of Atonement is known as Yom Kippur in, in Hebrew. The Day of Atonement was the day, the only day in the calendar, where the high priest would take blood into the Holy of Holies, and where the Ark of the Covenant was. The lid of that was known as the Mercy Seat, and even that designation tells you something. And blood from a sacrificial animal was sprinkled on top of the mercy seat to make atonement or covering for sins, to hide the sins of mankind from the righteous gaze of God. So the whole setup of chapter 8 of Nehemiah is people who have been restored after a time of sin and punishment, where God is going to gush forth blessings on them. And it's a time to call everybody together in anticipation and focusing on the ultimate outcome of this, which is the Day of Atonement, the covering of blood. And then later, from the day 15th for the next seven days, was the Feast of Tabernacles. So that was the third in the seventh month, where you would, as a family, gather out and you would make a, a, a booth or a, a tent or a structure, temporary structure, and uh, you would live there, at least part of the day would be there, to remind them of the deliverance from Egypt, where they lived in temporary structures during the time of the Exodus. So all that was focused on what God had done to restore, what God had done to redeem, what God had done to bless, what God had done to prepare them to once again walk as his people. Now, verse 3, Nehemiah 8. Then he read from the open square, this is Ezra now, that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. This went on for a while. Depending on how you'd say it, morning to midday, four, six hours, something like that. Before the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for, that, for the purpose. And beside him was right hand and it lists the number of priests that were with him. Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was standing above all the people. And he opened it up and all the people stood up. So they stand on their feet while the scriptures are being read. That was the way they would show respect to the reading of God's word. Verse 6. And Ezra blessed the people, the great God, then all the people, excuse me, blessed the Lord, the great God, then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is a very solemn, sacred time. All right? Verse 8, so they read distinctly from the book the law of, the Lord of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. By the way, this is a, this is a, we preachers love this verse because it really explains the process that we hopefully are involved in here in real time. And notice it starts with reading distinctly from the book. In other words, genuine expositional preaching needs to come from the book to us. It's not, let's get a bunch of ideas and let's kind of shoehorn them into the text and find our own ideas and, and paste a few little Bible verses on the outside. No, what is this passage? What is this verse? What is this sentence? What is this language saying to us? 
So directly from the book. And then it says in the law of God, verse 8, they gave the sense and helped them understand the reading. So the teaching goes on in addition to reading to help people understand what does this mean? How does this apply? What does this look like? How can we illustrate? How can we compare one scripture to another scripture as we go through the study of the word of God? And, and uh, that is, in my opinion, in our opinion, essential for spiritual health of a church body. So now we come back to, uh, to verse 10. Then he said, to the, let me read verse 9 and then verse 10. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the, law, the words of the law. And he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions for those whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We're back to where we began. It's a lot more than a phrase you tuck into a greeting card. And we need to understand that background if we're going to understand how we can get to the joy of the Lord and how we can get to find strength from that joy that we have in the Lord. Amen. And it all has to do with what we've just said, and we'll, we'll kind of cover parts of that again. Julie and I made a, a, what was a previously unplanned trip to Virginia this week. Our son... Uh, needed some help caring for his uh, his two sons this week, so we were, had the flexibility to be away. And while we were there in Virginia, uh, they have a five-year-old, Hunter's five-year-old, jo uh, Jacob is three, and we enjoyed being with them, as you would suspect. And uh, But anyway, Hunter, the five-year-old, comes up. I'm sitting at the dining room table. I've got my Bible. I've got stuff out. He says, what are you doing, Papa? And I said, well, I'm looking at this verse in the Bible, and I read the phrase, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In a typical five-year-old fashion, he says, what does that mean? And then I have to think, I've got to make now a five-year-old appropriate, hopefully, definition of this. So I gave him one, and I'm going to give it to you. This might not be the exact language I normally would use and some of the terms I would normally use, but I figure if a five-year-old can sort of understand it, maybe we have a chance to. Okay, so here it is. It simply means the joy of the strength is to be happy because of the things he has done for you. I probably wouldn't use the word happy because that's not a, probably a technically good word, but it's the best I could do with a five-year-old. But the emphasis in on what he has done for you. Well, what has he done for you? That's what we want to get to. As we look at what he's done for us, it generates this joy of its own accord. It, it will be there if we really focus on this. So really two parts of it. First of all, we need to do this. We need to gain an awareness of our own sinfulness. Gain an awareness of your sinfulness. You might say, that does not sound like fun, and no, it does not. We live in a world that seeks to avoid that at all costs. Please don't make me feel shameful, guilty. I don't want to be called out. I don't want to feel deficient. But these people were struck with the fact that they had been in disobedience to the God to the point that this whole crowd are weeping and crying to the point that the priest have to kind of say, wait a minute, stop this, time out. We need to look at this a different way, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But they were struck with an awareness of their own sinfulness. Well, where does that come from? Well, it begins from understanding what the Word of God says about what is right and wrong and about Him and us. It comes from the Word of God. By the way, you will not get any awareness of our own sinfulness from the world. You won't get it from the, from the magazines you see tucked in the, the rack at the grocery store. You won't see it from the, the majority of volumes that you could read in your bookstore. It is not, it's not from popular culture. It's not from people. Because we live in a culture, whether we know this or not, 
We live in a culture that de-emphasizes the significance of sin. In fact, we live in a culture that oftentimes even denies that there is such a thing as sin and certainly excuses every sin that you can name. There's all, well, there's always a reason. There's always an explanation. It's because of this, because of that, it's because of whatever. But the Word of God, have you noticed this? If you really study the Word of God, there are no loopholes. There, there's no wiggle room. Sin is sin, and we are people who have practiced it. Now, in a room like this, you might say that I'm sure in a room like this, there's some people that are in need of healing. There's something in my body, a disease, a sickness, injury, whatever, I need, I need healing. But that's only a portion. There's some of us in a room like this, you'd say, I, I need encouragement. I'm discouraged. I need, to, I need to be encouraged. I need to be lifted up. Maybe some of us, it might be, I need direction. I need to focus. What's next? How do I get there? Maybe for some of us, it's all three. But, but, but there is one need that is universal to mankind, and that is the need of forgiveness. Because every one of us have sinned against God above. And if you don't believe it, start reading the Bible and you'll be very convinced. Like these people who were hearing the word of God read, they became very convinced that it was true. So it ends then, it begins by understanding the word of God and they had that. But then it ends with mourning over our record of failure. And that's what's going on in verse 9. It says, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the Lord. Words of the law, I should say. So there's that mourning. Really feeling it, really knowing it, and really responding to it. So I want to say this. We need to have an awareness of our own sinfulness. We gain that understanding from the Word of God. It, it ends with our mourning and responding to it. And we need to make sure we get here, but also make sure that we don't stay here. This is only one step in this process, okay? So, and that's the reason they were called out in verse 10. So what we need to do is, is to move beyond that to gain an appreciation of his forgiveness. An appreciation of his forgiveness. As we gain this appreciation, this is what, what they're called out on. He, they're saying, and it's sort of behind the scenes, why should we eat the fat and drink the sweet? Not a time for fasting, it's a time for feasting, in other words. Why should we share with other people? who don't have anything prepared. Why? Because this is a day is holy to the Lord, and it's holy because it's all about restoration, about blessing, and about forgiveness. That's where we need to get, and that's where joy comes from. When we realize that we are sinners, we have messed up royally, we have sinned often, we, 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 even in our, our original formation, our conception, we had this bent towards sin, we, this proneness to wander. We need to come to this realization that we need forgiveness and that if you're one of God's children, you have that forgiveness. And if you're walking as one of God's children, we need to continually seek that forgiveness in our relationship with him. Now, let me just say this, okay? That forgiveness is only available to someone who comes the right way for that forgiveness. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, remission of sins. So it has to be blood involved. On that Day of Atonement, which took place on the 15th day of this month, that this was sort of anticipating, blood was taken in and was placed on the, the, the mercy seat. And that word atonement really means to be a covering, which not exclusively but primarily is an Old Testament concept because they would cover sins with blood, but then the next year on the seventh, seventh month and the 15th day of the month, they would come in and it would be the Day of Atonement again. 
and again. And there were all other sacrifices they did throughout the year. Then you get to the New Testament, and we have Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who once for all, in his death and his shed blood on the cross, paid sin's price, and there's no longer a need for continual sacrifice. It's all been paid in full. What the Old Testament sacrifices pictured and anticipated, Jesus has fulfilled in reality during his time on the cross, his death, and his, it, all, that, all that that encountered. And the truth of the matter is, the only forgiveness available is through belief in that. Belief in that. Belief that we as vile sinners, if we believe, we get this pardon full and free. If you've never trusted him as your savior, that's the first step. And you say, I'm not sure I know what that means. We'd be glad to just have a non-threatening, comfortable conversation just to share with you what that means if, that's a, if you don't fully understand it. Maybe you fully understand it and you never acted upon it, never said, you know, I, I think I'll trust in this or I'll trust in that or I'll trust in my own efforts. I have to be good enough. I'm better than somebody else. That, that all doesn't work. There's only one way to forgiveness, and that's through sacrifice, shed blood, and that's through Christ. You need to put your faith in him and him alone. If we can help you with that, we would stand ready. For us as believers now, we've been forgiven you know, from Christ in this positional, judicial sense, but as we live this life, we still sin. What do we do? Well, there's a verse that's found in Proverbs 28.13. I just read it, and you can annotate it if you're taking notes. But Proverbs 28.13, He who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Don't cover your sin. Don't act like it's not there. You, you uncover it. You confess it. Tell on yourself. Here it is. And by the way, we are so prone to even self-excuse ourselves. Lord, I, I messed up. Lord, I made a really poor choice. No, we just need to say, no, those words I spoke, that thought I had, that response, that action, that activity... That is sin. I call it that, and I want to forsake it. I want to turn from it and live a different way. That's what we do to restore our constant communion with God is, is we, we do that. But when we do that, here's what it does. First of all, it brings joy to know that you're forgiven, to know before God sins are gone. There's a, there's a, I found this little section from a, a pastor by the name of Rodney Buchanan, and he just said it so well, I, just, I want to read it to you rather than trying to even paraphrase it. I loved how he described this. It says, when you confront your sin, you come face to face with God. And the miracle you experience is the miracle of grace. Listen to this. Instead of de destroying us, he gives us life. Instead of condemning us, he gives us forgiveness. Instead of heaping on the guilt, he heaps on his love. Instead of shame, he gives us acceptance. Instead of lostness, he gives us direction. Instead of tears, he gives us joy. So in verse 10 of Nehemiah 8, when it ends with the phrase, Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That joy has been generated because God is in the business of restoring. God is in the business of blessing. God is in the business of forgiving. And ultimately it is found in the forgiveness bought through the blood of Jesus Christ and available to us. That we stand before him giving. And this is a wonderful experience that, that we need to just come back to again and again. You know, there's so many things that discourage us. There's so many things that are just, we, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, we have these shadows over us. But we come back to the fact that I'm forgiven in him. Yes, I'm aware of my sin. I acknowledge it. I, I take responsibility for it. But Lord... 
thank you that you're in the business of restoring. You're in the business of blessing. And you're in the business of forgiving. When you come to that point, you reach the point where joy starts to filter in. Joy that is not generated by the outside, but generated by what he has done for us. And then that allows us, as it says in this verse, to bring the joy to you, but also to share it with other people as well. And you see that, to send portions to those whom nothing is prepared. You feast, you enjoy, you be thrilled with this reality and share that with somebody else. That we can grant love and we can grant acceptance and we can grant blessing. I love what we're doing with the food boxes this month. And thank you again for your generosity. We're, we're, in essence, we're sending portions to other people to be a blessing in their lives. And we can do that in so many ways. We can do that by offering forgiveness. We can do that by returning love. We can re return kindness in spite of what we receive from others. And then you come to the last phrase of verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Present tense is your strength. It sustains spiritual strength within you. You want to have spiritual strength? You want to have that joy of the Lord, which is our strength? It all hinges on this reality that I'm a sinner, but I'm forgiven by him. I was destined for judgment, but now because of Christ, I'm destined for blessing. May God help us to believe, to respond, to act like, to live like forgiven people. As we do, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. Thank you for joining us for Living the Word today. We appreciate your sharing in this study of the scriptures. And thanks too for your prayers and for letting others know of this ministry as we seek to be living the Word today. We would love to have your feedback and to hear from you. And the best way to contact us is through our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Until next time, may His blessing be yours.